Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome, everybody. This is the Complex Sneakers Podcast. My name is Joe LaPuma from Jersey City. Full recover. Matt Welty, Orange Sweatshirt. How you doing? Uh, I'm alive and happy to be here tonight. Great. You look energized. And in Brooklyn with, uh, what is that, Picasso behind you? It's a little um, bit of original artwork. Okay. <laughs> My man, Brendan Dunn. How you doing, buddy? I feel okay. I'm a little bit sore, but, you know, on the road to recovery. Not, not, not coronavirus, just physical soreness from all the strenuous athletic activity that I do. How we feeling, guys? A nice evening podcast. I feel good. Complex podcast, late night hours. Yeah, I'm, I'm still awake. Good week so far. What are we at? It's Tuesday. It's only Tuesday. Wow. Like I said, I'm a little tired. I've been up since 540 this morning. I went and did a quick 14-mile run and then uh, grabbed some groceries before work. So, you know. 14 miles in the pandemic. With the mask on. Nike balaclava. Trying to get my lungs right. Yeah, I've been running with the mask. It's very tough, man. Granted, I've only been running for 17 minutes and not 14 miles, but still. <laughs> I've had it rough. You know, I finally finally recovered this week um, from what more than likely was case of coronavirus. Um, but you're pretty certain you had coronavirus. Also? Yes, it was. I was sick for three weeks and I had all the symptoms I had. I had I was sore in the lungs. I was sweating. I had the chills. I had all that stuff. I had the cough like it just wasn't fun, you know. Um, they're mild. Doesn't sound fun. (laughs) It took three weeks to get over. Um, it wasn't like you'd gradually feel better. It was just like, it just stayed. Um, but finally feel better. Finally started, um, working out again and it's absolutely destroyed me. What? You're sore? No, like just trying to work out with kettlebells and like a fucking callus, like ripped off my hand. Like, uh, fun times. Really putting the work in. Happy to be healthy, man. I'm actually feeling more optimistic guys. I don't know. I've also been staying away from any negativity, which has been helping a lot, but I'm hoping that, you know, these next two weeks, these next two weeks are critical, but I am feeling a little bit of optimism. What about you guys? I just feel like kind of used to this whole madness by now. I've been going up and down in terms of my mood and my psychosis, but I've kind of, kind of feels regular at this point. I don't know. Yeah. I don't, I guess. And like, I was, I think I was seeing this to you earlier today, Brendan, it was just like the fact that like, being sick for the past three weeks, it, the the idea of the whole quarantine really hasn't kicked in for me yet because I haven't been bored in my apartment because it's not like, oh, I can't, I can't go outside. Like, I'm so bored, you know? So mm-hmm. um, I guess it's, this is like the first week of it. So it feels, it feels new. Well, welcome to the party, Walty. <laughs> you guys have been getting in on the IG lives though, right? Just watching IG yeah. lives? 
I've been creeping on everyone's and not commenting. Although the Little John and the T Pain one was the best one. Yo, Scott Scott Storch absolutely fucking murdered Manny. Fr- Scott Storch was awesome too. He murdered Manny Fresh. Like, really? I love I love Manny. Really? The, I think the thing is, is I love Manny. Scott Fresh. Storch got more hits than Manny Fresh. Manny Fresh, I like the music more, but when you actually listen to the production behind it, like the beats, kind of all kind of sound the same, like over and over. And to hear Scott Storch's like depth from producing like Beyonce to like Dr. Mm. Dre to me was like a lot more impressive. Welty, when you used to smoke cigarettes, did you ever play the piano like Scott Storch did? <laughs> no, with the with the sunglasses <laughs> yeah, on. Yeah, that's how he used to make the beats. He kind of reminds me of like NCB a little bit, right? Yeah. There's like a little <sighs> bit of there's a little bit of vibe like in the look though. Oh yeah. I see the similarity. I don't <laughs> for the record, a, I don't see the similarity. No, that's no disrespect to no one. No, no it's not. You better not. You, know, you better not. Legend. No, I'm not disrespecting at all. I'm just saying that, like, you know, there are some similarities in the in the aesthetics. What's your food situation been like, guys? I told you I've been cooking a little bit, but the burrito I did tonight is probably my worst yet. I'm getting better, actually. The first week was awful. You know what it is? I'm not overcooking. It seems like overcooking is the thing that really is the detriment to good cooking. I'm like three to five minutes on each side and that's it. And that's what's really being, um, that's what's really helped. This is a steak? Steak and burgers and things like that. I think the first week I was overcooking everything and now everything's more flavorful because quick three to five minutes I've been Googling things and the results have been a lot better. It's a lot of trial and error. You realize it's like cooking at home. Like you're gonna overcook it and then you're gonna undercook it and then you're gonna kind of semi cook it. What do you got in your cup, water? I have tea. I've been drinking so much coffee, man. Yeah? So much. You guys recorded a great episode. Both of you texted me that you were very excited about how it went, the full size run that would have dropped yesterday when when this will be live. Tom Segura. Yeah. It's always great taping with comedians. It's just they're, they're so quick. And to me, comedians have like some of the best minds. I was like, not worried about it, but in the back of my head, I'm like, Tom's like marginally into sneakers. Like how much of this is going to be a conversation, you know? And it it just felt like he had an actual good story about everything we talked about, you know? Really great guy to talk to. Even more so than a lot of people who claim to be sneakerheads. So. All right, let's get to it, guys. We have a very, very special guest. His resume includes opening retail stores around the globe and collaborating with over 50 brands, ranging from Coca-Cola to Nike. He is one of the most prolific design brains in streetwear and sneakers today. He started his journey in this industry as a stock person when he was just 13. And personally, as good of a designer and business person he is, for me especially, he's a better friend. We're happy to have the CEO, founder, and creative director of Kith, Mr. Ronnie Feig, on the Complex Sneakers podcast today. Welcome, Ronnie. Thank you for those kind words. Very much appreciated, man. And uh, thank you for having me on. It's just... um crazy times and you know those times that make you reflect and appreciate all different types of things in your life and uh our friendship is definitely um one that i have always appreciated but uh more so during these times you know all my relationships are very important and um you know just uh blessed to be alive and blessed to have loved ones around me you know what i mean those are the times that we are in right now you know what i mean Absolutely. And what have you guys, Kith, I know that um, you've been helping out with the uh, pandemic. What have you guys been doing since um, the stores have been closed? So first of all, it's uh, that was a heartbreaking moment uh, for me and for the brand. 
uh, the decision to having to close the stores. And it was a hard one to make. And we, we closed the stores very early, very early on in the pandemic. But I, I felt like it was the right thing to do. And I felt like it was the right thing to do for our, our employees and obviously for uh, customers who were coming in to try to get those, those people to stay home. Yeah, I mean, since then, I hosted a, um, a Zoom video conference with Nate Brown and then had as many people uh, as, I, as I could uh, join, uh, join us to talk about their experiences and how they're feeling. Because, you know, coming out of this, I read, I read many articles um, and there have been many articles written on mental health coming out of this thing. You know what I mean? And people feel, people feel alone in this situation. And for those that aren't as fortunate as I am to have a wife or those that have, don't have a significant other for those that are going through it alone, it, it can be pretty tough. You know what I mean? So I wanted to host that with Nate, and I thought that that was really uh, helpful for everyone who's in the room, inclu- including myself. And we wanted to team up with Zoom to do something a little bit bigger, but we couldn't figure it out just yet. We're still working on trying to figure that out. And I wanted to also host an auction for five guys that work for me that were willing to give up their Air Force Ones, their friends and family Air Force Ones, and still in DS condition and auction those off. That's the Kith collaboration one? Yeah, exactly. And auction those off and and then give 100% of the proceeds to try and, um, you know, make more masks and 95 masks in the States to give to the hospitals, but couldn't figure out the right platform for an auction worked with one platform and they actually just laid everyone off a big platform uh, where they laid off like 90% of the employees. So that didn't work out. So I'm back to the drawing board. I'm trying to figure that out. And also just trying to round up as many masks as I could to send to the hospitals, which I think up until now we were able to, um, uh, to donate like 3000 masks, uh, which is pretty significant. And, um, yeah, I mean, it's it's been uh, a hard balance of trying to figure out how to help uh, and at the same time try to keep the company afloat with what's happening. So I think it's been a little over three weeks now and we haven't laid anyone off. Uh, and that's been, honestly, uh, priority number one is taking care of the people who work for us. Um, that's That's been the most important for me because we're, we're close to 300 employees now, so... It's not a, that's not a small deal. And um, trying to stay positive and working all day, every day uh, on the future, we had to push back a number of different projects that we worked on, big projects. That's been really tough. So what has that been like? Obviously, we're kind of at the country's orders. So we have no choice really to to push projects back and, and programming back. But how has that been for you to push back? I'm sure significant, significant projects. How tough has that been? It's, it's been really tough. It's been really tough because this year, uh, heading into our 10 year anniversary next year, this year was super crucial because we put together what I believe to be the biggest, like, and best lineup in our history, you know, in terms of projects, um, and collaborations, you know, which is in the brand DNA since the beginning. But um, when you think about it, I always have to put things into perspective because those type of things can make me really upset. But it's, uh, 
you know, it's, it's crazy because what a lot of people don't know, and I'm going to give you guys some insight into the business. What a lot of people don't know is when, when the coronavirus hit China, we were in the know in January and you mean like being in the footwear industry just gave you that much more insight into it? No, no. And footwear, by the way, footwear is a, a very is important part of what we do. But footwear is not, you know, our our business. And when I say what's going on in China, we buy from the brands directly. Right. So that's not what I'm speaking about. I'm speaking about making the product that we make. So a lot of the gotcha. a lot of the product that we make, um, a lot of it is made in Asia, and we've solidified some great relationships with factories there great factories that custom mill our um, fabrics and we've evolved and it's, it's pretty complex now. So when it hit in January, you know, that, that was the red siren that went off. And by February I was scrambling. I, I, I swear I must've slept six hours or eight hours in two weeks. Wow. Having to basically figure out having to move 2000 SKUs from factories in China to other factories we had relations with trying to get the pieces made for, you know, summer and fall and, you know, sitting down and having to figure that out for two weeks was very exhausting, you know, so to get, to make sure that we could stay on because this year was the first time we were really able to get ahead of this calendar and like calendar out the whole year. Mm -hmm. Then February was over. And then by the beginning of March, it was like, oh shit, it's coming here. Mm -hmm. You know, now all of a sudden I don't even need the product I worked on. You know, I worked so hard trying to get in. Right. So it was like, it was, it was very exhausting for the team. And it was uh, definitely an experience that I think people will look back on and, you know, appreciate that they got to, they, that they got to scramble in that sort of way. And if they, yeah. I, I felt like because they were able to do that, they can do, just about anything at this Definitely. Going through this is going to make everyone realize like this has been so tough to scramble and, and make things happen that when, you know, one day when things do come back to normal, we're going to look back on this. And, and this is definitely like a, a really good dress rehearsal for if God forbid this happens again, we'll hopefully be a little more prepared. But yeah, it's been a scramble for everyone. Ronnie, you mentioned, you know, briefly like the Air Force Ones, the friends and family. I know you had kind of previewed that official release pair in Shoemaster, I believe. Um, the Kith Air Force One, was that one of the projects that got pushed back? Not pushed back just yet. And mm -hmm. that, that shoe is, is different from the friends and family Air Force yeah. One. That Air Force One is the opening shoe for the opening of Tokyo. Wow. Oh, wow. You know, so there's a store that I've been working on literally, and people say this, like, you know, it's, it's, it's a little cliche, but I really been working on the store my entire life. You know, and, and, you know, Joe knows because I've been yeah. working on it for longer than a year now, but it's going to visually be the biggest and best thing that ever happened to the brand, you know? So, um, yeah, that, that's, that's an important shoe, uh, for, for myself, for the brand in general. Like that's like, that's my first Air Force One. So it's like, right. that's good. That's going to release. So that's a really, that's a really big deal. The shot that people saw wasn't really like such a clear shot, but, um, <clears throat> actually have it right here, nice. um, but the sample pair is downstairs. It's, it's a pretty incredible project and, you know, we'll see because, you know, Japan, Tokyo is under state of emergency starting yesterday. So we'll have to see how that shapes out.
Ronnie, I want to talk about perspective. You mentioned briefly the word perspective and kind of this 10-year anniversary that you're going into next year. So Kith opened its doors uh, November 2011, if I'm not mistaken. I want to talk about your beginnings in the retail game. Obviously, it doesn't start there. It starts all the way back 1995 with you at David Z. Is that right? Can you talk about kind of your genesis in the footwear game? Yeah, sure. Sure, we could start there. David, my mother's second cousin, because this is very uh, mis- yeah. I, 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 misconstrued, right? Also, yeah. hold on. Before he starts, I have a yeah. correction to make. Last week, I said he was from Great Neck. That is false. He's from Queens. The, the Why I say Great Neck is because when I, <laughs> the first time I went to his apartment with with some friends, it was in Great Neck. He was living at Great Neck at the time. So you're, are I, you uh, from Little Neck? Is that is that true? Uh, no, 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 no. He's from Jamaica, uh, Queens. I'm from Jamaica, Queens. Louis Pastor <laughs> Middle School? Moved out. Moved out when I was 18 to the city. Lived in the city for five years. Moved back to Great Neck because I was, uh, I guess, partying a little too much and <laughs> saw the same people a bit too much. So I really wanted to take work a bit more seriously. So I moved to Great Neck away from everybody. Yeah. Uh, right across the street from the railroad. I used to take the train in every day. I lived there for four years before I moved back to the city. So that's really the story. Um, wait, wait, we got to go back to 1995 though. Yeah, no, he's going back. He's going back. We'll we'll go, we'll go back. So I'm 13 years old at my bar mitzvah. I don't come from money. So my parents had to pay for the party with the money I got as gifts, which is like terrible because that's like supposed to be your first, like your first car or your Mm -hmm. first down payment on a house or, you know, have, have some cushion in the bank. That's like the bar mitzvah money. But you know, my parents couldn't really afford to throw a party and they really wanted to throw one for me. So then they have to pay for the party with the money. My second cousin at the time, my, my mom's first cousin, David was my role model. You know what I mean? Like he was who I wanted to be. He had a few stores in the city pulled up in a new Land Rover back then mm. uh, to the crib and used to, you know, put a hundred dollars in my pocket. Every time he saw me, uh, he used to wear cross colors in Carl Kanai, and he was like, you know, who I wanted to be. So basically, um, in my bar mitzvah, I'm walking to the bathroom. He taps me on my shoulder. I turn around and he hands me an envelope. And he goes, I know your parents are paying for the, for the party with the money. So I wanted to give you some cash. And it was a pretty thick envelope. And I was like, listen, I appreciate it, but I don't want the money. I, and he's like, he looked at me. He was like, all confused. He's like, what do you mean? And I handed it back to him and I, I told him I want a job. It was like, you're refusing to take the money and telling me that you want a job. Mm-hmm. Take this envelope. I can't promise you anything, uh, but you're not getting it back. So I said, take it, you know? So he took it. Um, he had one of the candles, you know, 13. And your bar mitzvah, you give a candle to like your closest people. So he got mm-hmm. a candle. And, you know, I said some fucking really heartwarming shit on it. So the next day, actually. Uh, he called me, and then the day after that, I started working in the warehouse. So that's how I started working um, in the stock room, which was a warehouse on the fifth floor uh, in the back of the office at the time of where David Z was, 540 Broadway. So that's how I started, and I worked the whole summer. By the way, like I was the youngest by far, but I was doing like crazy physical labor. Like There, there are a few pictures that my sister has of me that she sent me recently and I was ripped. I had like a six pack. 
I was ripped. <laughs> Young Roddy Debo? <laughs> I was like a 13-year-old looking like Vin Diesel, you know? Like, my, my sister was like, wow, I can't believe I ripped you or, you know, I'm going through photos. And by the end of mm. August, I'm condensing shoes up on the shelf. You know, I'm, I'm on a ladder all day long, just like condensing shoes. And the ladder falls out from under me and I'm hanging one arm, just hanging from the shelf. And back then, I remember the warehouse manager's name was Amadou, and I'm yelling, I'm like, Amadou! Mm -hmm. I'm like yelling for someone to come because it was pretty high up. It was like, it was a pretty, uh, a pretty decent drop. And I fell. And you're 13 years old. I'm, I'm 13 and I fell and I hurt my shoulder really bad. So I went home and I called my cousin and I was like, yo, like, listen, like, I really, he's like, I didn't think you would last a day. Like, this was like, I did it to teach you a lesson. Like I gave you the job, teach you a lesson, show you this is hard work. And you lasted two and a half months. I couldn't believe it. Like that was your test. Like this is like hard labor. I didn't think you'd mm -hmm. take it, but you never complained. And you know, that's something that I really appreciate. Like I'm going to put you in the store to work in the stock room there instead. So I started working in the store and it was a hell of a lot easier, but that was the time where I got to spend one-on-one -on -one time with the product, you know? So like, I wasn't opening the shoe boxes when I was working in the warehouse because everything was so fast paced. But when I was working in the shoe store, we would get the deliveries early morning. And there were some days where we weren't getting deliveries. And this is before we started, before I started school in September, I had a couple of weeks. So I was opening every box and like starting to really learn a lot about what my personal taste was in footwear, you know, because I loved sneakers up until then, but David Z was a brown shoe and boot store uh, back then when honestly, like people were as crazy about that type of footwear as they are today about the footwear that we all know and love. You know, like mm -hmm. that was that was what was making New York City go round. What were the shoes that you were into when you said you just started to discover your taste? Oh, so, I mean, so this is before I hit the sales floor, right? So like, I'm, I'm like intimate one-on-one -on -one with the shoes and the manager at the time, his name was Hassan, uh, who was like basically like an uncle to me. He was teaching me everything because he worked there five or six years before I got there and he was managing the store. So he knew a lot about the product. He was starting to teach me. And back then, the way footwear was made and what was selling was like a lot of made in Italy hikers. This is Clark's back when they were making the shoes in England, you know, Adam's boots, a ton of Birkenstocks, you know, brown shoes and boots. Timberland, Dolomite, Danner, mm -hmm. AKU, Trezetta, people were lining up for these boots. You know what I'm saying? Like people were wearing hikers the way they wear Jordans. That, mm. That's what was happening in, in 1995. I want to note too, just like David Z as a store. So founded in 1983, you worked there in 1995, but it was hard for me always to understand what David Z meant or why David Z was such a big deal. Like before your kids retail empire, you were synonymous with David Z, but I never really knew why David Z was an important store in New York. Yeah. So let me, let me break that down for you. David's history and what David Z meant to New York was very much in line with what Kith means to New York just before social media existed. Mm -hmm. And in a very different way, by the way, in a very different way, like, Think about this. It's 1995. Biggie, Pac, Fuji's, every major athlete, every major hip hop artist, mm -hmm. 
and everyone else, by the way, too. It was everyone, Harlem to the Hamptons, all cultures, all types, like preppy, waspy, Brooklyn, Harlem, everybody was shopping David Z. And it was like, you know, it was the epicenter of where people would actually go to hang out. Eight, Eighth Street between 5th and 6th Avenue was the most culturally impactful block in America during that time. Wow. You know, so at any given Saturday or Sunday, Sunday was really the day though. Sunday, so many people, so many cars would pull up to 8th Street that they would park diagonally on the block and the cops would let it rock because it was so many mm. cars. Every car was playing a different track. And on any given Sunday, you would find Missy Elliott, Diddy, Mace, Jay, Nas, AZ, Biggie, Pac, all of them were on the block on 8th Street. You were helping them. Yeah. So, I mean, I started helping when I was close to 15. So I started okay. helping them with shoes. But I was bringing the shoes to them as a stock as a stock person. I was mm-hmm. like bringing the shoes to them on the floor or, or helping the salespeople also, but getting acquainted. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I was nicknamed Whitey, like... <laughs> Um, actually, <laughs> by, actually by actually by by Jay Z's crew. Okay. Uh, when he used to come in and Tata gave you the nickname. <laughs> oh no, not Tata. No, no. Emery Emery calling you Whitey back in the day. No, no, no. I don't remember who it was, but I know it was someone on Jay's team. And then people in the store started calling me Whitey, and then all of a sudden, like you know, these hip hop artists were coming in, and I was helping all of them. And it was like, imagine being 15 years old and Wu-Tang, the clan, the whole Unreal. Clan, the whole clan is yeah. coming in and I'm helping all of them with wallabies. They wipe out my whole stock. They would come in, give me everything you have in an 11. Give me every, and every artist wanted everything we had in their size. You know what I'm saying? Helping the Japanese with Red Wing boots, lining up outside for Red Wing boots. It was like, cause they didn't have distribution in, in Japan. It was like all of what I learned, you know, and I grew up in Queens, mm-hmm. I just went to school by my house in Jamaica, like in fourth grade, starting fourth grade. Um, I learned culture from there, starting there. You know what I'm mm-hmm. saying? And my best friend was Dominican growing up, still a very close friend of mine. His, friend, his name is Joey. And he's responsible for a lot of what I'm into today, starting with movies, music, and fashion, because both of our sisters were six years older. So they mm-hmm. put us on and, you know, he grew up the wealthy family and his dad used to take us to the mall or whatever. He'd buy Joey, he'd buy me back when the mall had good shit. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So David Z really at that time in my life, like completely changed my perspective on product and what I loved, you know, and on that block, that's where you were buying Parasuco jeans, iceberg sweaters and Yankee fitteds. Like, and it was fat beats was around the corner. So right. I was also like, 15 i bought my first two turntables in my room like and and buying all the vinyl from fat beats on sixth avenue and i lived around the block from reverend run uh when reverend run before he got his big house in hollis he was he had a smaller house by me and uh he was the one who actually taught me to dj which is wow that's crazy reverend brought you up when we did that adidas thing with him remember i texted you and he said that you you saw him on vacation yeah yeah yeah. i saw him in st bart's last uh december or january yeah we mentioned it on the last podcast where joe had said that he had heard that you were shopping at the finish line that he was working at 
before you guys knew each other and you were supposedly uh, apparently buying up a lot of like old vandals and stuff like that back in the day. Yeah, we'd have to bridge the gap between David C. Yeah. And, and, I mean, I was still at David C., of course, but I spent 15 years at David C., basically. So mm-hmm. let me just tell you how it went. It was like uh, stock room and sales, assistant management, management, assistant buyer, buyer, general, general manager slash general buyer. So, you know, I was responsible for a lot of the, of the buys, and I also helped David transition from brown shoes and boots to athletic footwear, right? So... Crazy history with David. Like I, I could talk about that for days. You know what I mean? That's how me and Ronnie met because his first project was a three pack of Asics. Right. It was David Z. Right. And it was the oh. three pack. Yeah, the three pack patent leather. Right. Right. In 07, one, uh, two of them were patent leather, and the other ones uh, were like a pink faux suede with uh, with mesh. I remember Bradley Carbone <laughs> had me like pick them up from. Ronnie to put in the magazine to put in complex and that, that was one of his first big projects and that's how I met this guy and that was what year was that I was in 07 when it released I worked on it in 06 but they released in 07 how do you look back on those now like all these years later like seeing your first project because those shoes are so much different you know than yeah, the stuff yeah. you ended up creating later with the Asics yeah it's funny because it's funny that you're saying that because I'm going to give you some insight so my very first shoe with Asics all three of those shoes were based on colors that were coming out of Tokyo for mm. uh, shoes that were being worked on between Mida and New Balance and other projects that were happening. I was just seeing like what the yeah. what these Japanese retailers were doing and like what was happening there because ultimately the minute I I started um, cataloging my collection when I started collecting uh, and I also started. Uh, becoming very friendly with a few Japanese dudes who I was trading with in Tokyo, my taste level was really Japanese-based and Japanese-focused. So my perspective on footwear was what was missing from the American market, you know what I mean, based on what I was seeing coming out of Japan and Tokyo. So that shoe, um, that colorway, that first shoe with the pink and the blue, it's... The reason, the reason why um, I worked on uh, that Jelly 3, that silhouette, was because that was the shoe that I wore when I was younger. And I've told this story before, but... Yeah, they had holes in them and you wanted the Reebok pumps. Yeah, I wanted the Reebok pumps. My mom bought me a pair of Asics Jelly 3s that were a lot cheaper and I wore them until they had holes in the soles. And I wanted another pair and they, didn't, uh, they discontinued them. So when they asked me what shoe I wanted to work on, they... You know, Mike McLaughlin, which is one of the old OG sales reps from ASICS, opened up the catalog and told me to pick one. And I picked the July 3 because I love that shoe so much. Actually, when I saw it in the catalog, my eyes popped out of my head. Mm. So fast forward, though, I'm reworking those releases with my taste level from today. So, like, you're going to see me rework those shoes um, with a very different le- through a very different lens because... I look back and I'm going to rework every shoe that I don't fully respect in my catalog today. So is that uh, part of that 10 year anniversary project you're talking about? Uh, no, it's not part of the anniversary. Wait a minute. Hold on. Hold on. Hold on. It's a busy so wait, hold on. You're going to rework the ones that you feel that aren't of your taste level right now. You're going to go back and rework. Yeah. Because I feel like some of the pieces in my timeline are not timeless. And I, you have to understand, like when I when I first got the opportunity to make a shoe, I wasn't thinking I want this to last 
forever in my catalog. I want people, you know, to collect this and, you know, praise it 20 years later. But meanwhile, it's 14 years later, right? And it's like, I look back on that and I wouldn't say I'm ashamed of some of the stuff that I worked on because I'm not, I mean, it's all part of the hustle and part of the whole, you know, part of the whole timeline, but I am very much a product person. And, you know, a lot of what makes me who I am is like my passion and my love for product. You know what I mean? So if I open up some of the shoes that I've collected from my own projects and I wouldn't wear them today, that's a problem. Mm -hmm. I still want to respect that era of my life, but I'm going to rework them so I could wear them today. Got it. Ronnie, you, you mentioned that there was a point where you were trading stock with people in Japan. Can you explain that process to people? Because I think a lot of people these days, they're used to just being able to get any shoe from anywhere in the world and yeah. don't necessarily understand how at one point these things were regionally exclusive or this skew wasn't sent to this geo. That was a lot of the finish line days, right, Ronnie? Yeah, I mean, it was way before then too. Okay. Uh, my first pair of shoes that I started collecting was in 95 and it was the Flight 95. So it was the, the Jason kids, right? Okay. The white, black, and graphite, right? So my sister got her first credit card in 95 and she was like excited to spend on it. So she took me with her to Sneaker Corner in Fresh Meadows on 188th and Horace Harding. And I had already seen these Jason kids and I was like, wow, these are like spaceships that landed like mm -hmm. it looked like so, so different from anything else it was crazy back when like it actually remember when the oakley sunglasses had that design language you know what i mean yeah like, like, solarized exactly exactly buggy uh, looking exactly so when we saw those in the store i was like those are the ones you know what I mean? <laughs> and she was looking for a pair for herself and couldn't find them and i was like yo um can you buy me two of these <laughs> and she was so excited to use the card she was like yeah take them so, <laughs> Uh, so I, I bought two pairs and that was the first shoe that I ever had two pairs of mm. before then, obviously, you know, I was wearing air Darwin's like Rodman's Air Max 95s, uh, air forces. Like I was wearing, you know, heady shit back then, but mm -hmm. that was the first shoe that I actually collected. And, um, it was fun just after that you know, thinking about every pair that I really love that I really need two pairs of. So when I started working in 95 that summer, mm -hmm. uh, I was able to afford, you know, buying two pairs of everything I liked. And that's when the collection started. Uh, I would say that there are very few, I would say probably less than 20 pairs in my collection from that, those days, really, um, the collection started <clears throat> around, uh, 99 or 2000. It's, it's funny because my first real collection of, of footwear were Dolomites. Wow. And, and my first AOL um, instant message name... Screen name. ...was Dolo King. And, <laughs> and, it was because, and it was because I was collecting uh, Dolomites. Um, and then I collected Wallabies. And then I collected Trezettas. And... That era to me is my favorite era in my life. And that's why I always reference 1996 for the brand because 96 was the most influential year in my life. Hmm. Year, the year after I started becoming familiar with products, seeing these artists that were coming in. I feel like 96 is an interesting thing too, just because you are a guy who has mastered the whole collaboration thing. And that was the first David Z collaboration, right? Those gray Timberland boots. 
you said you watched 450 pairs go out the door on the first day and then like thousands more in, in the weeks that followed, right? 10,000 pairs straight off Jesus. the door, no internet, mo- not more than one pair per customer. So wow. picture people were driving from Miami to buy those pairs. No phone orders, only in the store. It was the most insane. And I don't remember there being, and I, there probably was, of course, but I don't remember there being two things. A, collaborative footwear back then. Mm-hmm. And B, and most importantly, this is my opinion, and I could be wrong, but I think that David helped bring gray into our market mm. as a color for footwear. Because aside from like, you know, very, and back then New Balance was not New Balance. You know what I'm saying? Of course. <clears throat> you can't reference that as like a stylish thing. Because back then, even though New Balance was definitely, I was wearing New Balance. I was the first one I remember in my school wearing New Balance. People were laughing at me. I, I think I was wearing 576s. But mm-hmm. people were like, what are, are those Nike? Like with the big N on the side, you know, just not knowing what they were in Queens. You know what I'm saying? But back then, it was a crazy time for sneakers, athletic footwear. And it was the beginning stages. Like people weren't lining up for shit, but I feel like what David did with a great construction boot, I remember them asking him like, this is a construction boot. Why would we make it in gray? Mm-hmm. And he's like, let me ask you a question. I remember this vividly. How many people do you think were construction in your boots? Yeah. You know, and they're like, you know, and these are people from New Hampshire, like, you know, from Timberland, like they weren't understanding or they were starting to understand how what that could be, how this was beginning to bubble in New York in a crazy way. Crazy field boots, 40 below super boots, constructions like it was crazy. You know what I'm saying? I, I know style numbers by heart. I know stock numbers in the store by heart. Still from those days? A hundred percent. That's crazy. A hundred percent. What's a six inch boot? Uh, first of all, it's 161. One zero six one. That's the style yep. for the wheat. 173, the style number for the black. 5009, the three eye lug. You know, I, these are stuff. Young Rain Man. <laughs> I mean, that's, you have to understand, like, that was my, that was everything for me. What were you trading? What did you see that they wanted overseas that they didn't have and that you were getting? You mean that? Japanese dudes in Tokyo. Yeah, when you when you started collecting and buying things to trade, what were those exchanges like? Oh, those were like American, you know, back then it was regional exclusives with Nike. So mm-hmm. what you were selling in, in Finish Line, they didn't have in Japan. So okay. all of those fat tongue dunks, not the SBs, right. um, the dunk lows, uh, not even the Pro Bs because they had Pro Bs before SB. And mm-hmm. the black grip tape and the burgundy grip tape, not those. I'm talking about the ones that came after that they made in colors. So they had a brown pair, they had an obsidian pair, like gray and blue, they had a beige and brown. They had the green, it was like an olive with a lighter olive. Those shoes, they were going crazy for those. And vandals, oh my God, vandals were crazy in Japan back then. So I was buying up stock and trading with them for stuff that they had. You know what I mean? And what did they have that you wanted? Uh, they had air, crazy COJPs, Brazil's, Argon's, you know, uh, they had, they had COJP Air Maxes also back then that were not as popular, but anything that was COJP I was bringing in, even shoes that were hard to get like in Taiwan, like the Taiwan's, the Air Force mm-hmm. ones, 
even though it wasn't in, in Japan, the Japanese were buying them up from Taiwan. So those shoes were being traded back and forth. For the people that don't know, COJP was basically the regional exclusive Nike program where they would make a limited number of shoes expressly for Japan because they realized there was this market of people collecting these things. Right. Ronnie, were you going on like certain message boards? and? No, no, no. I was never that dude. But I had these guys that were buying, that were coming to buy Red Wing from the store and then bring them back to Japan and buy Wallabies. Wallabies were crazier than anything. Like when, when Clark's started to sell in Japan, when Wallabies became a thing, because you need to understand something. Wu-Tang Clan was as big as it was in the States, in Tokyo, just the fucking little city of Tokyo. Mm, wow. It was probably bigger than anywhere else in the world. The Japanese worshipped Wu-Tang Clan like gods. They were gods, you know, and like, they were gods to me too, but they were a different type of god. Because like, mm -hmm. they, pro they weren't even understanding what, what they were rapping, and they, right. and they were gods. It was like that, you know? So... So I'm saying the Wallaby like really took off because of Wu uh, in, in Japan, and that became a crazy cult situation. Was Bape something that you noticed too back then, being into Japanese stuff? Yeah, it's funny because I was on the site, the exclusive site that was selling Bapes in the States was VintageKicks.com. Which we know as Flight Club. Which was Naoki, right? No, which was the Mani, right? Oh, yeah. But both so, of them. Yeah, yeah. So I was communicating with the guy from Vintage Kicks, like online, like yeah. just like messaging each other and not knowing that this dude was working for me. Like I was Domini's manager. That's crazy to me. And, and, and Domini is like a mythical f figure. At, yeah. And David Z, by the way, Domini is cool as shit, man. Like, and one thing that people can never take away from this dude is like, yo, this dude really hustled his way into starting this whole shit because yeah. there were there were consignment shops in, in Japan, but he was going back and forth. He really like started to learn the culture and understand consignment there. But Demani started that whole shit in the states. You know what I'm saying? So it doesn't matter what you know or don't know about the dude. The dude is a legend just for that. Yeah, Demani, the founder of Flight Club, which obviously the most important sneaker resale shop there is the gold standard for a long time before all these other ones popped up. And I guess Ronnie, he worked for you at, yeah, at David Z. He worked for me at David Z with me for me. I mean, I didn't own David Z, you know? right. but, uh, but yeah, he worked, he, he worked at David Z. And you had no idea you had this thing going on where he was yeah, building up this repertoire of vintage shoes? I was talking to him online and we didn't know. That's we crazy. to each other online. And it was just Dolo King and uh, <laughs> Mr. Kicks or whatever. Yes, exactly. No, exactly. So we're over here trading for Bapes and like some stuff I was getting from Japan and like a few pairs here and there. And meanwhile, he's working for me or working with me. It was an incredible time, you know, and that era really helped pioneer so many people, you know, and Kin worked at David Z too. Ricky worked at David Z. Ricky from Flight Club in LA. Mm, yeah, Ricky. I think Ricky has since left Flight Club, but Ricky has been on sneaker shopping shoots for up until like last year. You know, the thing I love about these Flight Club guys is they're kind of like Joe said, like mythical figures. Flight Club became big 
before social media. So the people who work there aren't the social media stars that they would be. They seem less interested in stuff like that. Like you said, like Domaini is so behind the scenes, like you never see his face. Never. I've never met him. I've never met him. I interviewed him once and he like, I talked to him for like 10 minutes on the phone and he was, I was like, okay, so it's cool. We can interview. And he's like, that was an interview. And he's like, delete that right now. You're not using that for anything. And it was just like, for, what was it for complex? Yeah. It was like, a, it was the 10 year history of flight club. And I was like, Hey, can I just like talk to you for like five minutes and just get a, you know, a couple quick quotes and you know, some background history. Yeah. And he was just like, that can't be on the record at all. And it was just like, like a fucking ghost in the night. You know what I mean? Like, Ronnie, do you ever cross paths with him now or talk to him at all? A while back. It's been a long time, but he's always been that way. You know what I mean? He's never done it for the vanity of the land. You know what I mean? And he's a smart business guy. You know, the guys that really made something out of nothing are guys that I'll always respect. You know what I'm saying? It's it's not even a question. And, you know, I love everybody in this game. I got no issues with anyone. And um, obviously, I'm very torn by the resell situation as a whole because I've always been against it. It's been a big problem for me in terms of trying to make sure that everybody stays clean uh, at the stores and, you know, give everybody a fair chance where today it's really difficult to do that. But um, I fired uh, very high up individuals, like very tenured employees of mine that have ran shops for me that I brought over from David C long lasting relationships and have had to let them go because they were fucking reselling shoes at flight club. And this is, this is years ago. This is like, Mm -hmm. we're talking about five, six years ago. You know what I mean? So it's been something that's been very, very important for us to really draw the line. However, it doesn't mean I can't respect it. You know what I mean? Like I have never sold shoes. So like my collection, I have, over over 2,000 pairs of shoes, I've never bought shoes to sell. I have bought shoes to collect. And as a, as a retailer, you know, like that's that's a fine line that you can't cross. You got to be in it for the right reasons. You know what I mean? And um, I've always just wanted to create, you know what I mean? And it's been my number one motive. We had Clark Ken on the show and he talked a bit about, you know, his anger over people reselling the friends and family shoes that he gives out to them. How do you feel when you see that happen with your sneakers at times? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's super disrespectful. You know what I mean? And there are uh, ways for me to track that now going forward. So uh, if I see them up for sale, I just buy them and then I'll find out, you know what I mean? Wait, how, I need to know, how are we tracking those? I can't tell you how I'm tracking them. It's not going to tell you. What that are you, the feds? RFID chip? That, that, was, that brings a new a new meaning to the term RFID. Hey, right? listen, those kit trips are going to be a little light next time. <laughs> <laughs> My hands are clean, though, baby. No, no it's it's, uh, it's it's disrespectful. But it's not like I'm going to confront the person. Or right, right. I just don't ship them anymore. There are a couple of people I took off the list over time um, because of that. But you know that the whole ethos of the brand is friends and family. It's built on yeah. that. Like, yeah. it's meant to be an inspiration to many, like, on how tight-knit our crew is and how much we love each other. Like, I know. It's, it's in the branding, right? Just Us, the name, Kith yes. from Kith and Kin. I got to ask you this trivia question, though. Yeah. True or false? Kith, did that originally kicks in the head? There's some truth to that, but not much. Wow, I didn't even know that. Where did you find that? Ask Jeeves? I, I know where he found that, and we're not going to... I never heard that. I've known him for over a decade. <laughs> no, there's there's some truth to that, but not much. But but Kith as an idea 
existed well before the opening of the shop in 2011? When I thought of the brand name, there was a lot of research done. And Kith meant a lot. By the way, Kith started in 2007, really. Mm. I started making apparel when I was at David Z in 2007. I had the black t-shirt with the gold writing. In 07, when I was working at David Z, I was making t-shirts and really giving them out to like all my homies. And it was, that's what it meant back then. You know, like friends and family and Kith means friends. And I always believed that my friends were my family. And that's how it started. You know what I'm saying? So it started in 07, but then the footwear thing took off, you know, with the ASICS project. And the day that I released the ASICS, the president of Adidas US was in the store and saw the line from the article that was written in the Wall Street Journal. And then that's how I got the Adidas collab for the black tie uh, Shelto's. This and, is a David Z? Yeah, exactly. You guys became a, like a Footprints account in 2010, I think it was? Yeah. Wow. Look at you. He's good, bro. Yeah. He's good. Uh, He's good. In 2000, I don't remember the year. I think it was 2011 or 12. I released the black tie Shelto's, which was a leather shell to wear with a suit. And then those were made for the staff of Goldbar. Yeah, I remember that. Because the girl that I was dating at the time, <laughs> she was uh, she was actually working. I helped Gold Leaf. I was painting the ceiling of Goldbar before they opened with my ex-girlfriend. But basically what I'm saying is that the issue happened off of the release of the ASIC shoe because the president of... They just moved that very day to the office across the street from the store. And mm-hmm. he saw the commotion from the window of the line... And it came in to speak with me, and then that's how the Adidas, uh, the Adidas shoe came to life. And after that, it just started to snowball with the brands that I was buying for. Uh, you know, I was starting to work on projects with all the brands for David, and it became a category of the business for David C. Yeah. Sorry, which which ASIC shoe was that? The two fifty two. The first one you did. Gotcha, gotcha. How did David feel when you were like, "I'm doing my own thing"? Um, that's a good question. Uh, I don't. I don't necessarily know exactly how he felt because uh, he didn't tell me. But um, you know, David and I had a good relationship. I worked for him for 15 years. He was my mentor for many years. He taught me how to buy, um, and I taught him how to be in touch with the younger consumer that wanted to evolve from what he was carrying. I think we helped each other through the years a lot. Uh, I definitely learned a lot, and. Um, you know, I, he he had his own run and, and legacy, and his legacy is still strong. You know what I mean? So, yeah, we don't speak much these days, uh, but I'm assuming that he's happy. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. 
Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. It's interesting because in an interview around that time, I think it was with Ruby Hornet in 2011, you said that his philosophy was about making stuff mass and yours was was not that. But it's almost like I feel like you've caught up to where David Z was then because Kith at this point is such a mass level brand, a mass level retail operation. You know what I mean? Oh, no, 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 no. I'm not I'm not saying you sold out. I'm just saying like. First of all, hold on. Time out. Okay. Saying that we're mass when we have four stores is like, no, 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 I don't mean it pejoratively. I'm just saying in terms of the impression globally, like Kith yeah, is like the no, biggest, no doubt. but the difference between myself and David, David was selling sketchers and Crocs. Mm. That's what I meant by mass. Like he gotcha. came to open stores in the highest form of traffic that he can get. So like when he was opening stores on Broadway between Prince and spring, I inherited when I opened Kith uh, with my partner, Sam, who owned Atrium, I, right. had to, I had to be in a basically a closet in the back, right? And when we grew, I had to grow into the space on Broadway and, and Bleecker. And I had eight years left on my lease and took a very, very big risk cutting mm. that lease, having to pay to get out of the lease, spending a crazy amount of money building the store in Lafayette. I was projecting 70% less traffic to go to Lafayette because I didn't want to be on that block with the traffic, you know? So, and then we built our own traffic and ended up doubling the traffic that we had on Broadway. So mm. it's the philosophy is Kith is for everyone who wants special product. That's the philosophy. I mean, when you look at what Colette did or what beans does mm. or, you know, or what United arrows has done and we're, or even, you know, Dover street market, are they mass? To me, Kith feels bigger than Dover Street. Yeah, well, you know what? I wish I can be as big as Dover Street. No, no, no. Again, I'm not saying it pejoratively. I just I mean in like your trajectory. No, I, I hear you, right? But it's harder for me to see it inside. You're seeing it from the outside. So like we want to have the global footprint and we want to be a household name. But the difference is we're not going to change the formula of how we get there. You know what I mean? We're going to continue to evolve and get better in what we do instead of trying to accommodate to more people, we have attracted more people with what we have done. It's like different philosophies and how we get there. David wanted to become a bigger business and use his name to then step into another category of business with a different clientele. That's gotcha. How do you look, you know, cause we're saying that for just the average like streetwear consumer that Kith for the most part is like a, a household name, even if you're saying it's not um, the mass brand, but how do you view then other brands in the space? Like you have like something like undefeated that has all these branches and they're in urban outfitters or concepts is, you know, has the Amazon money now. How do you feel about like, that's the hardest part. Like the business side of things is very hard to understand. And if anyone really analyzed and understood it, like from the inside, um, we've turned down, I've turned down 
so many opportunities and so many investment opportunities and so many, uh, you know, offers to make this thing or grow this thing bigger than I want it to be. It's been done strategically as to how I can remain happy doing what I do. So when you talk about a brand being available in Urban Outfitters, Kith has never been available anywhere. It's been available sometimes uh, when Colette was open, we would, mm -hmm. some of the collections would get shipped there. And then if we're, if we are available in other shops, it's our shops within those shops. So like a Bergdorf Goodman or a Hirschleifers or a Selfridges, those are one-off shops though, not chains, you know? So it's like, I'm, I'm very strategic with where we sell the product because you want to be able to control the narrative and how you show up, you know, like selling product in Urban Outfitters, respect to whoever has that business plan, but you can't control how you end up looking in Urban Outfitters. I have people on my team from Oscar de la Renta, from Philip Lim, from Alexander Wang working on my men's collection with me. Like I have really talented people in fashion and I don't consider myself a streetwear brand um, because streetwear, the term streetwear is very diluted at this point as to what it actually means. You know, the streetwear back when I grew up meant a graphic teacher, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. But we're making pieces that could sit, you know, sit on a rack with luxury brands. I'm 37. I want to wear the product I make. So I'm trying to balance it out where we don't lose the younger consumer who's entering the brand right now. And that's why the brand has gotten to be such a wide spectrum of product is because I don't want to alienate the kid that I used to be interested in a brand like, like Kith. Um, and I also want to make sure that I keep the kid for the last nine years that started with me back then. I want him to evolve with me as well. But uh, the construction and the fabrics of the apparel that we're making is very premium today. And if you look at Spring One as an example of what we've released, um, that's some of the best product we've released to date. It, it, the questions that you're asking are all really good questions that are making me think, obviously, and I haven't been asked these questions ever in terms of having to compare us to anyone else because I really don't keep tabs on what's happening outside of what we do. You know, I, I have tunnel vision and what the goals are for the brand, and that's how we got to where we are today, not by trying to compete, but by trying to grow. Ronnie, you mentioned that there were other opportunities to make it bigger. Are you saying you've walked away from bigger companies that wanted to kind of inject $100 million into Kith to make it the next um, gap or something like that? Sure. You know, I mean, there are many ways to word that, but uh, I have an investment folder in my email that I just drag those emails into. Every time someone pitches you on outside money coming in? Yeah, like I don't even I, I don't even have those conversations. They're not even conversations. They don't even make it to that stage. You know, it's it's everything that we've done. And this is, you know, for anyone trying to start a business, I have my own philosophy on how to grow it. Everything that we've done has been self-funded and zero loans. Zero loans and self-funded from day one. You know, and, and that's one thing that nobody can ever take away from you. You know what I mean? Is the work that you have to put in, you know, to stand on your two feet and do it yourself. You know what I'm saying? So when you see a beautiful building in Soho, we did mm -hmm. that. You know what I'm saying? We did that. When you see the beautiful shop in Miami on the corner of 20th and uh, Collins, we did that. You know what I'm saying? When you, when you see the corner of LA, like these are like incredible shops that cost a lot of money to build. Mm -hmm. you know what I'm saying? And, 
And we did that by not taking a dollar out of the business, but by reinvesting it all into the business. You know what I'm saying? So, and that's when it means more. If I was to take money from whoever to help me grow the business, it would mean less to me. The fact mm. blood, sweat, and tears going back in, it just means that I need to take care of it that much more. You know, talking about all of this, I know it's been said of you in the past, but is it is it safe to say that you're a control freak when it comes to the business a little bit? Of course. Yeah. Of course. Any Listen, anyone that owns a business is a control freak. They have to be because you have to control how you do what you do to stay alive. You have to be somewhat of a control freak if you own your own business. You know, there are levels to this shit, of course. <laughs> Um, Which level are you at? <laughs> Orange? <laughs> Have you ever had to check yourself where you're like, I'm being a little too much? Of course. Of course. And, you know, I have people on my team that help check me too, even though at the time when they check me, I don't make them feel like it's proper to check me. Yeah. But, but uh, I don't have, I don't have yes men around me. And that's the most important part of all this. You know, there's um 17 directors and VPs at the brand. Uh, and they are very crucial to the business. It's not all me. It's actually a, a lot of it sits with the team, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And it's basically like major decisions I don't make on my own. I definitely appreciate feedback from the team and also ask for expertise because I have some really talented people on my team, really, really talented people. Ronnie, looking back at your career, this latest chapter, the KISS chapter, you know, 2011 to 2020, does it ever feel like it went by fast? It's an interesting period for me because it coincides basically with the time that I've lived in New York. And when I came to New York, KISS was so new, but now it seems undisputable that KISS is like the biggest sneaker retail operation in New York. Did that seem to happen? Am I, am I no, it's funny to hear you say that. It's like, it's, it's just funny to hear you say that. And not biggest. You know what I mean? Like on the boutique level, like Kith is the sneaker store in New York, right? Are you meaning to say greatest or biggest? Yeah. No, I'm not. No. That's not a I'm, 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 I'm trying to understand what you're saying. Don, are you basically saying like, you know, coming up where there was multiple boutiques back in the day in the Soho area, you know, a lot of them have fell by the wayside, un unfortunately, and Kith seems to be thriving sort of in the tangentially same vein as those were. You know, we talk about... Vocabulary is crazy right well, now. We, do, <laughs> we just talk about... The, the one thing I love about this podcast is we always talk about things of yesteryear and DQM and clientele and things like that. And Those were not the retailers I was aspiring to be. Okay. You have to understand something. That's not my sandbox. I was inspired, but not aspired okay. to be, mm. to be what, you know, to be those guys. So when I opened Kith, I just wanted to be the best footwear. And I say footwear because a lot of people don't remember it was half athletic, mm -hmm. half brown shoes and boots. Yep. There was, there was the, the sneaker room and there was the boot room and it was split personalities. Yep. In fact, when we opened, there was a leather curtain that split them and the boot room had different music and different personnel. When I grew up in David Z, I had learned from all the brands that I was working with, I understood the best from each brand. I understood the best product from each brand. And I had a very unique perspective as to what that product was. And it didn't mean that the footwear needed to be 
exclusive or mm-hmm. rare. It just needed a point of view. You know what I mean? So that's how Kith was birthed. It was birthed off of that. I remember uh, an anecdote I think you shared about one of those early Sabago releases. I know we were talking about the Sabagos recently. I, I had a pair back in college, but that I can't remember the, who the two people you, you said had purchased them, but it was like Nas and then like Matt Damon had both put in an order. It was Nas and somebody else. And it was like the exact taste level you want it to be where it resonates with this group and also this group in terms of that's, the product making sense to people. Listen, that's the DNA of what we do. You know, Nas and Matt Damon? <laughs> that, that too, by good the way. Good spectrum. Very good spectrum. But you, like, I never wanted to be, you know, too exclusive for anyone. Mm-hmm. That was never the Kith way of doing business. You know what I'm saying? Kith was meant to be welcoming to anyone who wanted special product. You know, and I guess that came, a lot of that came from traveling and seeing how the Japanese were doing it, seeing how Colette was doing it, seeing how Doversy was doing it. It was like, mm-hmm. I had my own view on what people like me wanted. It was always based on what I wanted in my closet. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. And how I wanted to buy it to end up in my closet. How crazy is it for you to kind of, you know, obviously you're, you're still doing all the collaborations and, and all that, but it feels like, you know, when people think about like the, the glory days of Kith, like the salmon toe era and, and all that, it's like when a lot of other retailers, there were, you know, Soulbox and Pata and all these other boutiques that were doing these like collabs that we kind of like hold dear for, you know, um, collectors and nowadays it feels like the shop collabs have kind of gone by the wayside a little bit and they've been replaced by you know Virgil and Sakai and Travis and you obviously being such a big part of that how is how is it seeing that shift happen within the collab game hey listen the glory days for me are when these Rose 990v2s come out that's like I, I feel when we are releasing these products, I still feel the way I did when I first started releasing them. So this isn't even like, you know, when we released the Colorist, for example, 1700, there were very few pairs of those made. You know what I mean? Like, I'm not doing those type of things to make a ton of money and for it to be like how I, you know, how I come up on the year. Like, that's not like the business plan is with these collaborative footwear projects. These collaborative footwear projects are meant to pay homage to like how I felt, mm-hmm. you know, collecting shoes because I always want whoever is buying product. And I, I feel like we've used the same approach to the apparel too. We're only making a hundred to 200 pieces per skew on the apparel side. And on the footwear side, it's not that many more than that. It's like, it's meant to be kept as special. So you're right. Where we started off being a footwear boutique and it was only footwear. But now it's like, for us, we've never taken our eye off the ball. Like footwear has always been just as important as anything else because that's how we started. It's like, Mm -hmm. that's in the blood. You know what I mean? Like that's like my number one forever. But but now it's a lifestyle shop. We're no longer a sneaker boutique. Do you ever miss the old uh, Kith retail space? Hell no. The one rack? Hell no. I remember that. You have to understand, I miss... I'm trying, I'm always trying to think of how to evolve. Yeah. My office was under that store. Joe, do you remember my office? Yeah. My yeah. Office, it was, it was in like, in a, in almost like a in stock. It was kind of in a basement. It yeah. Was in the stock room 
in yeah. the back in the stock room. No, no, in the bathroom. My bathroom yeah. was right next to my office. My office was big enough for four desks. And that was me yeah. for two and a half years. You know what I mean? So when you think about, and now my office is above Balenciaga under, you know, under FIDA. So it's like, yeah. when you, when you say, do you miss, I miss, I'll tell you what I miss. I miss, you know, the beginning stages of building something new. Yeah. I yeah. don't miss the space in which I did it. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. I don't miss the fucking office by the bathroom. And right. I don't miss my little 800 square foot space that had fucking tiles cracking and the yeah. projector burning out and the fucking wood giving splinters to people from the fucking shelves. Like that I don't miss because I couldn't afford to build the store that I have today. So it's like, you know, I, I know that you're stating, and I, I, I get this, that like people have this feeling of, oh, in the glory days of when Kith was way smaller and spoke more mm. on a personal level, right? But the truth is, the way that we create and make product is still through the same lens. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And how I communicate product and how I want people to see product will always be the same. I'm the the fit model for all of the apparel. Yeah, that's true. That's true. 2,000 SKUs a year. I'm fitting every single one of them. I'm home, quarantined getting boxes of apparel to fit on video conference. I'm fitting all the apparel by myself, like having to basically measure and tailor product on a video conference, like without a tech designer next to me helping me. One thing I want to bring up, I've been around you for a while, as we've said, and we've traveled the world together and I'm so appreciative of it. But I remember one specific time where you said to me like, to paraphrase, I really feel like I made it. And it was in Shelter Island a few summers back, maybe four or whatever. And it was because Kith Apparel became the biggest apparel selling in the stores. How special was that? Let me let me just correct you. Okay. I, I don't Ron think doesn't I was, like this word biggest at all. Well, no, 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 no. no. go ahead. I want to no, hear. No, I'm, I'm, do you I'm, remember I'm, that at all? Well, yes, I do. But I, I would never say... I, it, those words can never come out of it. Like, That's I why I said that, paraphrase, though. Right, right, because I want to make I want to make that clear. It's okay. Like, I still feel today, like I don't know necessarily what it would take for me to actually feel that. Got it. But I, I did feel there was a major win. You know what I'm saying? When when um, the Kith brand became you know, the biggest part of our business, because when that happens, the most important part of what we do became the differentiator between us and every other business model. Because when, when, when you're a lifestyle shop and you need to worry about every brand that you bring in being profitable, Mm. you can't take chances. What this has allowed us to do as a retailer has allowed us to look at the buy completely differently now. Now we can really tell the story through a lens, through my personal lens, where I'm showcasing product in a way where I want you to see it. Like, I want you to see it in a very special manner. Like, when we go and we buy from brands, like um, a Stone Island, for example, our buy is very unique. Like a Montclair, for example, our buy is very unique. You know what I mean? Like 
We're not buying what the typical is buying. We're buying what we feel, what I feel looks best on a rack. You know what I'm saying? What goes on on the the Kith trips? <laughs> yeah, what are you talking about? <laughs> the famous Kith press trips. They're amazing. They're not press trips. They're the friends, the friends and uh, the friends and family trips. Which uh, I for love, the, I love for the listeners who don't know, Joe's been on quite that, a few. I love that you just said that right now. The Kith press trips. Yeah, they're it's amazing. So it's so funny that you say it that way. But I, I love that because. Hey, listen, the next time I'll FaceTime both of you from them so you can feel like you're there. (laughs) Brendan, listen to this. This is the truth, right? I'm being 100 And I rarely do this type of shit, but I feel so comfortable speaking to Joe. Like, and you guys too. Mm -hmm. I'm going to tell you this straight truth always. And it's like, when I think about, you know how when when we go on these trips, it's actually working backwards from where do I want to go where I haven't been with mm. all of my homies yep. mm-hmm. and chill. And then we figure out a place. It's like, oh shit, we've <laughs> never been to Aspen. Good. Well, we should probably design a collection for Aspen. And then I designed a collection from Aspen so we can celebrate the collection together and I get to gift all of my homies and we mm. spend time together. That was the, by the way, that was the only purpose of the trip. And then I also open a pop-up in that in that location so that we can bring energy as a as a group to the city. And you know, the, my homies are like have grown just as much as I have. You know yeah. what I'm saying? So like all of us have grown together. But back in 2015, when we opened the pop-up in Miami for ECP, that was incredible. And that was the first time we did that, and it was I just had an idea of just bringing all my homies to Miami and launching a collection in Miami. It was like, that's how I, I still have those gel light threes up in the closet upstairs. So are you saying you didn't want to do those gold ASICs? You just wanted to go to Brazil for the world cup and have a party. I'm saying, I'm saying I wanted to go to Brazil for the world cup before I even thought of making those ASICs. (laughs) I have those upstairs too. Which, by the way, are incredible. During that era, you were kind of, you kind of became known as the master of like 117 previews of a shoe like before <laughs> it dropped. You, you like had sneaker Twitter and Instagram, like you were pulling the strings. You're like, I'm going to preview the heel and then the tongue tag. And then was it fun for you to kind of play that game with like the people who followed you He's, to kind of guess? He still, yeah. he still does that. There's no rollout. Like, I feel like it's not as intense though. Like back then there was like nah, 15, 15 blog posts no, for each shoot, like as a lead up. It's definitely not as intense, but what people don't realize is none of this shit. I wake up in the morning and I go through my photos and I post random shit. None of it is formulaic in any way. It's like, my photo bank is crazy. You got some throwback Jolo Puma photos in there? Yeah, how That's about definitely. the photo I found of, like, with, with me, Ghost, and Ray? I didn't even know I had that photo. Yeah, yeah. It's funny because you have some of that same clientele in Kith now that you did David Z. Like, it's still a place where rappers and influential people go to shop. I remember you saying at one point, correct me if I'm wrong here, but Kanye West came through the original Kith space. I have a crazy story for you right now. Yeah, let's see. I have a crazy hear. story for you right now. Oh my God, this is a crazy one. All right, Alex Goldberg is working as an intern. <laughs> Alex Goldberg, uh, he goes by Gucci Goldberg. Uh, he's kind of like a New York City downtown kid since he was young. Oh, Gold, it's just Goldberg. Yeah. He's in like that Onyx oh, Collective right, right, group, right? Right, right, right. He's still, yeah. and he's still young. It's just he was like in Soho when he was like six. 
Gotcha. Yo, by the way, look up a story in New York Magazine yeah. about Alex Goldberg. I'm glad to have this background because I never know. He's like one of those like Instagram guys who I'm like, what does this guy do? Here's how I met him, right? I met him at Nike ID on Elizabeth Street. Mm-hmm. Right? When I, you know, it was by invite only. So right. I got invited. Your to girlfriend work. used to work there, though. Your, your girlfriend at the time. So you had a little in, right? Look at Fed. How do you know this shit, bro? This, he's different, bro. I'm telling you. Anyways, go on. Research is crazy, bro. Like, yeah. Anyway, um, I met her at Nike ID that day, and, and Alex Goldberg was working there. He was 13 years old or 12 years old or some shit, and he was working there helping her, and that's when I met him. Mm. So he lived around the corner from the store, and he'd always come by with his mom, and I built a relationship with that family. So anyway, I hired him as an intern, and he's working in the store, and I'm in the office actually having a meeting with ASICs. This is, sorry, this is old Kith. Old Kith. This is 2013, a couple of months before anybody heard any tracks off of Jesus. Okay. So Goldberg is working in the store and Lucas is the manager, right? Yep. Lucas works for StockX now. So he's working in the shop managing and Goldberg is there as an intern. And I get a text and I get a call. And when he called me, he's like, yo, Kanye's in the store. What do you want me to do? And I was like, close the doors, give him a private session, like where only he can shop. So they close the doors and it's one other customer in the store that we didn't want to kick, that Luke didn't want to kick out. It's one customer, Alex Goldberg, (laughs) Lucas, and Kanye West in the shop. And Kanye West has security, by the way, over there with him. So... Now I'm at my desk meeting with ASIC, so I turn my camera on in the store. So I'm watching, I'm watching what's happening in the store, and it's black and white footage. I'm watching him shop around. He picks up a pair of shoes, and he tries one shoe on, and a song comes on. He looks up, and I hear the context later because I, I have no sound. Mm-hmm. So he's like, hey, do you mind plugging this in? I believe it was his iPhone, right? And Lucas is like, yeah, I'll plug it in for you. So he plugs it in. He's like, start from song number three, I think he said. It comes on and he starts bobbing his head. He gets up wearing one shoe on the couch and starts performing in the store <laughs> for, for four people. <laughs> Listen to this. He performed five tracks off of Jesus at my store with four people in the shop. Why didn't you go? You didn't want to go? You didn't get up and go? You still have the tapes? I'm watching it. Yeah. I'm like, what the fuck is going on? So (laughs) Alex Alex Goldberg is texting me. He's like, bro, this is the sickest music I ever heard in my life. And by the way, the system at Kith was crazy. I don't don't know if you remember shopping there, but so they had the volume on blast. That That was wild. Do you have the tapes still? Do you have the footage? I think I do. I think I do. It's on a hard drive somewhere. I kept it though. I remember saving it that day. Had you crossed paths with him before? Once before at the shop, actually, in Atrium. But then after that, uh, a bunch of times. I thought I had a story in my head about, like, you were one of the first people to mention that the Easy 2 was happening because you had seen Kanye and he had showed it to you or something like that. Yeah, so the first uh, Yeezy collection... He actually was um, casting in my first office outside of my store. 
And I saw Virgil in the elevator and I've met Virgil before and me and Virgil knew each other very well. He's like, yo, I want to introduce you to Kanye later. And Kanye showed me the first series of shoes and then asked me if I would give him my feedback on what I thought. Which shoes were those though? The 750s. Gotcha. And the first gotcha. show, the 50s and the 300s, uh, gotcha. the first 300s. And you ended up doing recently the 997.5 New Balance United Arrows, which Kanye kind of made a thing. That shoe was the hardest shoe for me to find in my size. And of any shoe that I've ever collected, it's the hardest, it was the hardest shoe for me to find. And that hunt led to me wanting to remake that shoe because I couldn't find it. The United Arrows 997.5. I just fucking wanted the shoe. And I just... Poggy couldn't couldn't help you out? Isn't that your man? Poggy? No, no. Poggy couldn't help me with that. That was... I don't... There was no... None of those... He might have a pair under his hat. They they might have... (laughs) Okay. They might have made 300 of those total. You know what I'm saying? So it was very hard to find that pair. I actually found the pair after we started working on reworking that 997.5. Where'd you find it? Uh, I have a few Japanese dudes that still uh, that know my size that still reach out to me with really rare shit. Okay, mm. and uh, I had a homie reach out to me that he found them. Uh, so you're like projects canceled. I already have the shoes. I don't need to make them now. <laughs> yeah, I was no, no, no. I still want to make them for sure. It's such a special shoe to me, you know. And I don't take all the credit for that shoe, even though the new version of that shoe is different. There's a black suede tongue and black laces, and it was a Black Friday drop, and that was like that. Why we inserted the black into the shoe, but there's so much credit that needs to be given to the Japanese culture and how Japan has inspired me. And that's why I want to give back and open my most beautiful shop there. You know what I mean? So I feel like you are one of the guys who helped translate that passion from Japan to the U S for, for new balance. I know Europe is big on new balance. There's a lot of new balance collectors in the UK, but even you, like this is around 2011, 2012, like trying to explain to people why the New Balance 1300 is an important shoe or what's the difference between the 1300 CL versus the, the JP, you know what I mean? And then my first New Balance shoe being the 999. Of course. Taking the colorway and then, you know, applying it to like a very, an up-spec fabric, you know, basically doing it in New Buck and Pig instead of doing it in the suede's that you're normally seeing with the mesh toe. So it's like, for me, it's always important. You know where I learned up-specking? Up-specking was... What is that? It's taking something like Champion mm-hmm. and then up-specking it to being like, you know, producing something that you wouldn't normally see on a Champion piece. Mm. The Japanese have made like fur-lined Champion jackets, mm-hmm. Champion knitted sweaters, like... It's something that you would never see, and that's upspecking the brand. So, like for gotcha. me, I wanted to upspec the style, and that's why we did the 999 in that version. And by the way, I don't know if you saw like in the last show, but the the 992s were in the show in the CL colorway, mm-hmm. and the CL colorway needs to be celebrated. Yeah, yeah, yeah. As much as possible, because that's the shoe. Let me give you a little history about how New Balance became culturally relevant. In 1995, six, seven, those three years before Giuliani cleaned up, you know, the drug dealers were in need of comfortable shoes to stand on the corner. And they would come in wearing Air Forces, Hmm. wearing Air Maxes, 
being like, yo, like I can't stand in these all day. Like, what are we doing back then? New balance was like an orthopedic brand. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? So they used to call them the orthopedics. So, uh, the 1300 was the most expensive new balance shoe that you can buy back then. And that was the orthopedic shoe that they would buy to stand on the corners with, you know what I'm saying? So that's how, uh, new balance became a thing, you know, because are you selling a lot of those at David Z? Yeah. Hell yeah. Hell yeah. You know, like all the, all the drug dealers were shopping with us back then, but most importantly, like the drug dealers were, those were the stars back then. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like how sure. everyone wanted to be like them and what they were dressing, you know, you've seen paid in full, you know, the deal, like those were the fresh dudes. Like they were coming in getting fresh. You know what I mean? Imagine being a 13, 14, 15 year old kid, like seeing all of this and I'm living in Queens and I'm trying to bring that back. Like the first time I wore Royal blue suede wallabies, which was a David ZSMU um, with Royal blue parasuko jeans, like jeans with Royal blue parasuko stripes, a Royal blue Mecca shirt and a, mm. and, a, and a Royal blue bear jacket. And it was like walking, you know, walking into my middle school, wearing that kit. See walking through the halls. <laughs> and you know, people, people were laughing at me. And then a year later, people are doing that. You know what I'm saying? Like, it was fun to be able to see the trend actually begin on that block on eight. Mm-hmm. You know, like Lauren Hill with some Gore-Tex and sweats on me, treks like I'm homeless. Like I sold her her Gore-Tex boots. She thought Gore-Tex was the brand of the boot, and I'm there explaining to her what Gore-Tex is. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. So imagine being in that era of like the been around the world video, the Dolomite. Oh yeah, I sold those to them too. Yeah, know? Mason Diddy. That's right. So like, but imagine, imagine being in that era and being a sponge of seeing all of this shit at once. It's like, it was too much. It was like Mm -hmm. the music, the fashion, the people, like seeing all different types of cultures too. Cause you know, David Z was on 8th street. That's like the village. So like you're getting the local too. And the local is coming in wearing socks and Birkenstocks, you know what I'm saying? And then. He's and, and then the Jamaicans are coming in buying uh, buying Clark desert boots, and then the drug dealers are coming in buying Timberlands and fucking hiker boots. You know what I'm saying? And then the, the grungy dudes were coming in buying Red Wing lugger boots, like mm. engineer boots. Bikers were coming, you know. So it was it was just a melting pot of all cultures, but more importantly, all styles. Because back then people weren't dressing like the next guy on Instagram, everybody had their own style. So like I got to see all different types of style and be inspired by different fashions. You know what I mean? One thing fast forwarding to recent projects, and I'm wondering if you have a good story about this collaboration, the mm-hmm. LeBron 15. What was that like? You know, I always think of that picture of you and him and like your face looks like you're shocked and you're looking at something. I'm showing him a picture of the final version of the shoe that I just got sent in from Portland and mm-hmm. showing the picture on my phone. You know what I mean? We're going crazy, but this is a LeBron 15 long live the King pack. That project was, I, I think the most important project of my life, you know, aside from mm-hmm. obviously the first one to, to kickstart it all, but you know, we were in talks for quite a while and Maverick and I are really good friends. Maverick's one of my mentors. 
Also, great uh, debates these guys have, these two. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Bloody debates. Yeah. But, you know, when I saw the 15, because Jason Petrie came to see me um, in my office, and Kevin Dotson and JD and JP came to see me. They showed me the shoe in the very early stages, first proto, maybe a year and a half out. Mm-hmm. And I loved what they were showing me. Like the 15 is one of the best LeBrons, maybe top two, in my opinion. So we started talking about like, I love the shoe so much. I wanted to see if they would be interested in working together on something. And they were. Um, and then when I, when I started working with Jason on it, he was like, listen, man, I just want you to dream of anything and let's try to get it done. So like he really opened, you know, opened the door to let me uh, get creative. And that shoe with the wraparound, you know, started off, it actually started off being a magnet and we had to switch it out to a Velcro strap, but it snapped over the center airbag under the sole and then wrapped around the shoe. You know, like there's a video in my journal on the site where you could see like the first video and the first proto, but having him debuted the shoe at the show, that's a crazy one. And then, you know, I signed the patent. I have a joint patent with them on the 15th. You're getting royalties? No, no, no. It's nothing like that. But because they already had the 15. Right. The zippered version. Oh, we signed on the full zipper, you know, down the front of the shoe. And we were the first ones with, with Nike. We, we approached them with the idea of embroidering over the knit. So, like, the, the pattern, the cloak, that was the King's Cloak pattern over the knit was the first time that they tested that. And... Uh, that was a big deal because LeBron obviously won an MVP trophy during All-Star wearing that shoe. And that's the shoe that opened my LA store. And that was definitely one of the best moments in my career. Ronnie, what's your day-to-day like at the Kiss store? Like how often do you go to the Kiss store on Lafayette Street in 2020 since we're talking about kind of recently where you're at? I try to make it there as much as I possibly can, even though I'm a block away. Uh, I guess because I'm a block away that I feel like I don't need to always be there because mm-hmm. I'm in close proximity. If anybody ever needs anything, I'm there. Kanye West shows mm-hmm. up here right up the street. Yeah. You know what I mean? And it's easy just you know, walk on the block, but there are days where I'm like 14 meetings back to back. I have to say, I have a complicated relationship with the store. They always treat me very well there. It's good because I go with my girlfriend whenever she needs a pair of sneakers and she's reminded of how famous I am because somebody always recognizes me. <laughs> There's a young Palestinian dude who helps us out. Shout out to him. But, you know, when the store first opened, Ronnie, we, we texted. We've never, you know, I don't really know you too well, but I remember I had a little scoop about that store opening and I said, hey, are you opening a new store on Lafayette Street? And you said, ah, it's just a rumor. I wouldn't post that. <laughs> <laughs> he's always digging he's he's, he's probably, always he's digging my number immediately he's a digger he's a digger yeah he is one of the last things i want to ask you you're talking about things you know with that you created with lebron i guess there's a debate going on did you or did you not invent the jogger pant i invented the jogger pant i invented, <laughs> i invented the twill i don't like to say i invented something because it probably existed you got the pattern but i no, no, there's no, you keep the patent for that. But I believe, I, I didn't know of it before. And this is how it happened. I got a pair um, for my birthday. It was a scotch and soda washed out camo twill pen. Okay. I really liked the pattern and the fabric. And I hated the fit of the pen. 
So I brought it to my tailor. I wanted to elasticate the cuff, right? And I wanted to bring in the leg because it was a bit too baggy. So he looked at me, he's like, oh, so you want it to fit like your sweatpants because I wore sweatpants in there. And I was like, you know what? I want it to fit exactly like my sweatpants. So I gave him my sweatpants and he took the measurements off my sweatpants and made the same cut in this twill pant with an elasticated cuff, right? Now back then, no, I, I have never seen that before. So when you ask me, did you invent or did you win the first one to come up with? I haven't seen it before, so I'm gonna answer yes. And he made it for me and everyone started asking me about this pant, which is why I went and made the first Mercer pant in the garment district in New York. But that's what started the whole Kith brand. I so appreciate this conversation with Ronnie because it's interesting to me, you see Kith so much in New York City, but sometimes I don't know if the young kids realize how long Ronnie's been doing what he's been doing because I've been following Ronnie's career for 10 years now. And I know when I see an 18 year old kid, I'm like, I hope that they understand where this perspective comes from or where this lineage is. I have spoken about it on the show a lot, but just this idea that, you know, we are a scene or we are a community and we have a lineage. These things didn't just happen. Like Kith just didn't pop up, you know, you put in all this work. So I appreciate us helping you tell that story. Nah, and I appreciate you guys too. I want everybody to keep their head up, especially during these times and really stay united and try to stay positive because I don't see us coming out of this thing until the end of May, beginning of June at the, at the earliest, you know? So these are the times where people come out stronger and use downtime to really build themselves up. You know what I'm saying? And I hope that everybody, you know, I've been seeing a lot of posts about people speaking about not having to be productive. Like, don't, don't stress yourself on being productive. Why not? Why not? Why would I not stress myself on being productive? I do that every day, quarantined or not. So like, whatever you can do to advance yourself and educate yourself. We didn't have the time before to maybe read a book. I didn't have the time. I didn't have the time to research things I cared about. But now, like, even though my days are still full with work, I don't have a lot of those other distractions happening. So I'm out here just trying to make the best of it. And I, I would suggest that everybody do the same, you know, come out of this thing smarter and stronger. Wow, we've covered a lot. I feel like we could keep going. Anything else that you want to touch on? Real quick. Also, small businesses during this time. As big as you think Kith is, which... You know, according to Brendan, we're the biggest fucking brand in the world. Right? Stop and shop. <laughs> but but, but the, the truth is, this, you know, couple of months, it's not guaranteed that we come out of this. And that's the truth, by the way. It's not guaranteed that we come out of this. I, I believe that I've done all the right things to put ourselves in the best position that we could be in. But there are going to be other you know, small businesses that don't make it out of this. And that really, really sucks, right? Like that's the shit that sucks the most out of this. Mm -hmm. And if you could support small businesses, support them as much as you can. You know what I mean? Like, because for us, I have 300 employees and not laying anyone off is my victory in this. You know what I'm saying? While other businesses staying afloat or alive during this time might be their victory. You know what I mean? Or so, some might have to close down and then 
feed their families and that's a victory. So like putting all of this into perspective, people don't understand the ramifications of this whole situation. And it is really detrimental to some of these companies. You know what I mean? And I, I, I think that um, it's easy to look past it with all this funny shit and memes on social media, but yo, this is really, this is real right now. Absolutely. And I think I speak for everyone. The playing field is level and we're all in it together. So um, it's tough times, but we'll definitely, we'll come out of this stronger. Ronnie, can't thank you enough once again. Let it rock during the quarantine. Listen to these words carefully and we will see you guys next week. The Complex Sneakers Podcast every Friday, wherever you consume your podcasts. Thank you. Our producer is Shiva Bayet. Sound engineering done by Kyle Garvey. Special thanks to Dave Matthews and Jennifer Stewart. The Complex Sneakers Podcast is part of the Complex Podcast Network. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.